Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Mitchell Silver, the current Commissioner of Parks for New York City, and someone recognized as one of the leading thinkers globally in urban planning. As it happens with politically appointed positions, Mitchell's role as Parks Commissioner has had a mission and a theme, which has been to bring fairness and equity to the investment of resources into the parks in New York City. You heard the same theme, actually, expressed on a broader scale a few episodes back from Mitchell's boss, the Deputy Mayor of New York, Vicki Bean. No surprise that parks in the neighborhoods of color in New York have had serious lack of investment, and that was much of my conversation with Mitchell, plus our in-depth discussion on the role of parks in public space during COVID. Mitchell talks about his leadership in New York, which is both our nation's first city and the place that he grew up. But his passion and leadership is much broader than that and broader than his perspective as one of the black leaders in the planning world. His true passion is the importance of the planning discipline and a planning mindset as we tackle the ongoing challenges of the growth of our cities. Mitchell is a deep, influential, and I think a real common sense thinker in this business. I learned a lot from our conversation and hope that you will as well. A quick thanks, shout out, and congratulations to my daughter, Callie, who's graduating from Berkeley City Planning Program in a few weeks and for suggesting Mitchell as a guest and for all of the contributions that she will make during her upcoming career in this field. Also, thanks to my company, Terra Search Partners, for sponsoring the podcast. Through our work in real estate executive search, we find ways to help our clients find the best talent and increase their business's impact on our built environment. And these conversations like this today with Mitchell Silver evidence that ongoing quest. I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices. We're now at episode 94 on our countdown to 100 episodes and truly creating a library of conversations like these. We invite you to check out the archive on your podcast app and on our website at www.leadingvoicespodcast.com for related episodes in architecture, planning, development, New York City, all of which we'll call out in the show notes. As always, please feel free to email me with comments or questions at matt at So Mitchell Silver, thank you for being a guest on Leading Voices. Thrilled to have you. I've had several conversations with architects and planners throughout the course of Leading Voices, just for our listeners to go back. Andres Duwani was one of the first guests. The late Phil Freelon was a guest. And also John Ram, who was then the head of city planning in San Francisco. We've each great conversations. And we interviewed your boss, uh, Vicki Bean, about a month and a half ago, talking about New York. And we're going to come back to New York again. But this conversation picks up on the themes of planning and particular public spaces. And for the last seven years, you've been the Commissioner of Parks in New York, and you've just recently announced that you're moving on, which we'll talk about as well. And you've lived through COVID and lived through a lot of changes here. So maybe kind of quick start from your standpoint, just kind of headlines on who you are, what you do, where you sit in New York, and some of your other activities. Sure. Uh, well, I'm an urban planner by training. Uh, that's been my career for the whole 36 years. Uh, the last seven years, I've transitioned uh, to be parks commissioner, a new adventure for me, not a stranger to parks, but overseeing a very large agency was something new. But New Yorker all my life, born and bred in New York, lived in Brooklyn, right near Prospect Park. 
think that was my first introduction to green space mm-hmm. when I was a child. But throughout my career, I was very fascinated by cities and so decided to be an urban planner. And lo and behold, when I was in North Carolina, I got a call from the mayor and said, would you consider being the parks commissioner? And I said, no. And he said, wait a minute, this is New York City. And I said, well, why would you not take this job? And I said, I'm a planner. Parks is 80% operations and 20% planning. And the mayor said, that's why I want you. I want to rethink parks in the 21st century. So I'd have to say throughout my entire career, both in the public and private sector, being very active in professional association, uh, I was very excited about coming back to New York and intrigued by the mayor's vision of really addressing what he called a tale of two cities. Not all neighborhoods were treated the same, particularly for parks, and he wanted me to really focus on creating a 21st century park system, equitable, inclusive, safe, and clean. And so the bottom line is, after being a planner for so many years, uh, speaking all over the world, getting a pretty good grounding and what, why cities are so important in parks in particular, I decided to come back home to New York and take on the challenge. Mm. And how much of it wound up being operational and how much was that planning? I would say 70% operational and about 30% planning. Uh, uh, when I came on board, I didn't even know we had a planning and parklands division. And they basically would do a lot of acquisitions and studies, but I elevated that division to really focus on long-term planning. And so they have been elevated and mm-hmm. I'm pleased. And actually I got to like operations quite a bit. Cool. And it's interesting. And I asked Vicky this question as well, which is that when you come in with a mayoral administration, you have a limited amount of time to do things. And so you talked about the mayor's vision and how around particularly equity and inclusion around the parks. Was that the rethinking of parks, equity, inclusion is the headline or how we use parks? Was that to change as well? No, it was about the equity. When I met with the mayor, uh, when I came up, it was March of 2014. We had a long conversation. He told me straight away that equity was critical to his administration. Mm -hmm. He ran a platform of the Tale of Two Cities. And growing up in New York, I knew there were great parks like Central Park, and there were other parks that didn't have as much love. Mm -hmm. So clearly, that was his focus. New York City, we have term limits. A mayor has four years. If we elected, maximum of eight years. Bloomberg managed to squeeze out 12. So I'm appointed position. Uh, My term would be up in December of this year. Uh, I was offered an opportunity, so that's why I'm leaving a few months early. But the answer is yes. The mayor has a vision, a focus, and equity, having a fair city, was very important to this mayor. Mm -hmm. And we're going to keep talking about that, but let's do the headline as well that you are leaving and you're moving back to an engineering firm. So just talk about that, and we'll come back Uh, later, too. I'm leaving the end of June, and the firm is both a civil engineering, landscape architecture, and planning firm. So I'll be coming in as a principal and I'll help the firm. I'll advise uh, our clients and communities focusing on urban planning and parks, recreation, trails. Uh, So I'm very excited about returning to the private sector where I'll be able to advise communities all across the country on how to plan, plan for parks, uh, plan for just for the future. So I'll be starting that role this summer. Cool. And that's a company called McAdams, I think? company is called McAdams, right. They're well-recognized, have offices and a triangle, and also in Dallas. And then in addition to this, you're currently the president of the American Institute of Certified Planners, and you've been the past president of the American Planning Association. So That is correct. So just talk a little bit about your industry and the leadership that you've chosen to have in your industry and why that matters to you and why you matter to the industry. 
Well, first, I am so glad I chose planning as a profession. It fulfilled the purpose for me of creating great places. And so the organization uh, is an or- association of about 40,000 planners across the world, over 90 countries. And our goal is to provide education, support, networking for all of our planners uh, throughout the, the country and for that matter, the world. So that's the American Planning Association. It's been around for a very long time. I believe uh, 1917 is the first conference in Washington, D.C. And the organization changed names, but it's been around for well over 100 years. So that's the American Planning Association. And this year actually is the anniversary. 10 years ago, I this year I started serving my first term as president of the American Planning Association. The American Institute of Certified Planners is the institute of the American Planning Association. It's more of the credentialing arm. They facilitate the exam, certification. That's the AICP after my name. Uh, you have to take an exam to show you are certified to uh, be a planner. You have continuing education, but now I'm serving as the president of that organization. I started uh, January 1st of this year. It's a two-year term, so I'm excited to come back after 10 years to be president of the Institute of the American Planning Association. Got it. And trying to think of, when you think of planning and you think of good planning and bad planning, and you think of your profession, how high is the bar? And there must be equal number of examples of planning that, gosh, we wish we never did or didn't do as planning, just built it versus coming in consciously and doing it right. Kind of talk about that a little bit. And then is there something that you stand for or you believe in or you understand with relationship to planning as a profession? Well, first, the good part of planning is that as the city starts to urbanize very rapidly, the way we plan, we're killing people. We had congestion. We didn't have proper sanitary conditions. Housing was designed very poorly. And so the profession emerged at the time when we were urbanizing this country very, very rapidly. Right. And so to make sure that uh, buildings were designed a certain way, we had sidewalks and sewers and roads, commercial areas. And so it's just managing the growth and change of your city. And that emerged in the early part of the 20th century and continues to this very day. So to me, that is something that is vitally important. So planning really is a profession that we look at managing growth and change, Mm -hmm. whether you're a growing city or a shrinking city, that we want to make sure we plan for that risk and uncertainty about the future. Water. If you're a growing city, you want to make sure you have access to water. What do you do with your waste? All this is involved in planning for a city. Mm -hmm. If anyone knows SimCity, it's the same thing. As you grow, you got to make sure all those pieces are in place. What drew me to planning and what I think I did differently, I didn't just focus on the physical. When you're in planning, you deal with maps and zoning and land use. And to me, it's more about the people we plan for. So I'll always say we plan for place, but more importantly, we plan for people. On these maps are neighborhoods with culture and memories. And that's where people thrive and they enjoy their daily lives. So it's not just a zoning map. These are neighborhoods. This Mm -hmm. is commerce. These are Mm -hmm. communities. And so I wanted to make sure I brought the people element into my work. And that's something I feel very, very strongly about. In fact, that's why I switched from architecture when I was in school to planning, because I felt architecture was just about the design, the building. I'm saying, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. I'm planning for people. I don't want to be a doctor of a house. I want to be a doctor of a city and make sure it functions right. I do the diagnostics to find out what's wrong and then recommend what we can do to make life better for people who live there. 
Mm-hmm. It's interesting. This weekend, I'm going to Kosovo, where my daughter lives with her husband and my granddaughter. So we're going really to see my granddaughter, of course. But in Kosovo, it's fascinating. It's the poorest city in Europe, or poorest country in Europe, and they're building willy-nilly. And willy-nilly is the opposite of planning. And, and it's just there's a building here because they got the land and then a building there because the brother-in-law got the land or whatever it is. And there's roads everywhere, buildings everywhere. None of it makes any sense. And you could spend a lot of good money after bad because buildings and development cost a, just a ton of money. Everything we build is interconnected. And I've been to places, I don't want to name them. And I can just walk off the plane and saying something's not right. This place does not have a strong planning apparatus. You can tell. As you said, things just do not make sense. So planning is laying out that grid where cars are going to move. And because you have a grid, you know where to put the sewers. Mm-hmm. You know, so it all starts to fit in place. And so that's the physical side of planning. But also the other side of planning is that at the very beginning of the profession, public health professionals and planners were just side by side. I mean, people were literally getting sick in the way that we planned. And so we were able to make sure our cities were orderly and rational and so that's the difference between having a place that's planned and you think about it, and then place just do things kind of willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. Got it. So let's talk about kind of your administration, what you've done over these past eight, seven, seven or eight years. And when you came in and de Blasio said, hey, we're all about equity, did he have the statistics in mind about the disinvestment in parks or the unequal investment in parks? I don't think the mayor had the numbers, but you could just drive around and yeah. see. You were comparing organizations had conservancies and friends group that can raise huge amounts of money to invest in their parks. So standouts were places like Central Park and the High Line and Bryan Park. And then you go to other parks like saying, wait a minute, you know, this is part of our park system. We have about a little under 2,000 parks in New York City. And there are those that are well-maintained and cared for and others that were not. So the mayor said, do something about this and said, do it quickly. So the mayor gave me about six months to kind of unpack this equity issue. Within six months, we came up with this plan called a framework for an equitable future. We laid out about 10 initiatives, but the one that got the most attention was the community parks initiative. Mm -hmm. We decided to take a data-driven approach to find out how inequitable we have been. Now, when I use the term equity, I have one word definition, fairness. Mm -hmm. Are we being fair about how we spent our tax dollars on improving and maintaining parks across the city? So we did this data-driven approach. Number one, we found out New York City spent close to $6 billion over 20 years. That's multiple mayors in investing in parks. They came up with this walk score. (laughs) Everyone should be within a 10-minute walk to a park. And it was about 80%, good number. But two things concern me. Number one, we wanted to find out out of all of our 2,000 parks, how many received less than a quarter of a million dollars over 20 years. Now, again, $6 billion spent. How many didn't receive much money at all? And it turned out there were 215 parks. Mm. Hiding in plain sight. No investment for 20 years. That broke my heart. That broke the mayor's heart. So that's going from kindergarten to college that while other parks were getting invested in, you saw absolutely no change. The mayor said, that's not fair. I said, that's not fair. And to the mayor's credit, he put his money where his mouth is and said, you know, I'm going to set aside over $300 million to address 67 of the 215 parks. And just so that you know, we've already completed 55 
of the 67 and has been transformative. I can tell you story after story about how this equity initiative has really changed these communities. These are places I would not step my foot in, weeds growing through the asphalt, high fences. These were not places I would take my child or grandchild. Now they've been totally transformed from asphalt to a green oasis. Mm -hmm. Give an example, make, make that real and give an example of the neighborhood context in which one of those existed with those fences and grass that wasn't working. So there's one Lafayette playground, uh, use this as an example very often in Brooklyn. This looked like a parking lot. It was all asphalt with line painted where you can play baseball, I assume, and a tall fence. That was it. Your Robert Moses era playground, tall fence, asphalt, no trees, no grass, just asphalt. We're able to break up the entire asphalt. We engage a local community, which happened to be black, Hispanic, and Asian. We then turned this into a beautiful green oasis. There's an area for Tai Chi. There's an outdoor classroom, trees, grass, synthetic turf. And that park has been totally transformed. No longer a parking lot. Another one which really moves my heart was one we did Stockton Playground in Brooklyn again. This is one where asphalt playground, once again, just some play equipment, outdated. We transformed this to be a beautiful, colorful park, play equipment, synthetic turf. There was a track. And I remember the day we were opening up this playground. There was a little boy, Hispanic, about eight years old, who refused to go into the park on opening day. This is a big day for us. You know, balloons, everything. It's just a great day. He would not come into playground. I asked one of my staff members to go to that little boy with his father and ask him, why won't you come into this new playground? And his little boy said he didn't want to come in because he didn't know how much it cost to go into that park. Mm. It was so nice. He didn't think it was for him. He's used to in his neighborhood having these tall fences, unhospitable parks. And it was so nice. He thought he had to pay mm -hmm. to go in. And I remember once we told him it's free, you can come in. He was running around that track with his father, you can see the joy on his face. He had not experienced something that beautiful wow. in his neighborhood. That's the power of focusing on these parks. Last example, in Staten Island, it's now called Maggie, Reverend Maggie Howard Playground. Before it was called Stapleton, we renamed it. And I remember there was this huge black man, about 6'3", heavy. He grew up in the neighborhood his entire life. And we were there for the visioning meeting to tell him how we're going to transform this space, about four acres. And he kept staring at me. He kept saying, what are you doing here? I thought nobody cared. I lived here my entire life and no one came to this playground to change it. What are you doing here? I thought nobody cared. So this community parks initiative, it's near and dear to me because I'm seeing how it's connecting people in these public spaces, particularly during covid when our parks aren't just for physical health, but for mental health. It's creating memories for fathers and sons and fathers and daughters and grandparents. It has that power. Now they can be proud to go into this space and not just have asphalt with line painted and a tall fence. Wow. And another note is that you would not be surprised that these parks that had lacked investment were in all the neighborhoods that would not surprise you, black and brown communities right. and Asian communities that they just not did not have the same level of parks as more affluent neighborhoods. So you're right. People would have to travel out of their neighborhood, go to a regional park. But in New York, because we're so dense, your neighborhood park means everything. That's where you go. That's why it's important to have a park within a 10-minute walk. But not all those parks are parks I'd want to go into.
mm-hmm. the community parks initiative didn't just look at proximity, they looked at quality as well. And now we're changing parks throughout the city. As commissioner, we've now completed over 850 capital projects since I've been here. And the public notices, and they're saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, especially during a time like COVID. Uh-huh. Let me ask a question, because when you say the word, they weren't parks I want to go into, what my mind goes to danger, not asphalt, right? I'm scared to go in a park, and that's an old version of those parks as well. Any comments about how parks are safe places? Oh, they're very safe. Uh, in New York City, less than 1% of all crime happens in our parks. So our parks are safe, large parks, small parks. We look at our data on a monthly basis, mm-hmm. work with the police department, so our parks are safe. We're now making them safer by lowering the fences and providing quality play equipment and quality parks. Mm-hmm. In the past, they looked vandal-proof. They were designed in a way that said someone's going to destroy this play equipment, these benches. And so we right. have the vandal-proof benches from the Robert Stern era, which are the benches I hate the most. Mm-hmm. There are these two-by-eights. There's four of them. They're not comfortable. And now we've upgraded them to be really world-class benches from the World's Fair and other eras within parks. Colorful play equipment. So we found when well, we respect the community, with quality, world-class amenities, they respect you back in return. And so there's more green, uh, more colorful palettes of our play equipment. Right. Uh, we now have the uh, upgraded basketball courts with uh, backboards that are plastic and nets. I mean, these little things matter. Right. And so people are just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. They notice the difference. It's interesting. I listened to a podcast, 99% Invisible, this was about two years ago, and they had one on the design of park benches that every one of the things that the park bench was supposed to accomplish made it the worst thing to sit on or be near. Yeah, I tell my staff, these are outdoor living rooms. We right. pay special attention to how you place the benches. You know, now we do a lot more perpendicular, not side by side. When you go to someone's house, you have your sectional or you have your sofa and the chair. Mm. That's how you have a conversation, not side by side. So we're quadrupling the amount of seating in our parks because we know these are social gathering spaces. Some people just want to sit and have a conversation, enjoy the beautiful green canopy of a tree on a hot day. And so we really focused on putting a lot more seating because these are outdoor living rooms for people. And so we've totally reinvented in the 21st century how mm-hmm. we design our parks. It, it's interesting because you just added a word. I, I, we were talking over dinner last week about how Starbucks created the third room, I think is what they call it. And yes. the parks are the same thing. And But Starbucks opened up the world to where I can go somewhere that's indoors and I only have to buy a cup of coffee to be able to rent my table for an hour or two. The parks are free. Even better. Yes. Even better. And that because I mentioned Starbucks and the parks, does that then mean that there's restroom facilities there? Because that's my problem for that hour. There are restroom facilities, not in every park. We uh-huh. have about 700. We have 2,000 parks. Yeah. So we do. Uh, as we get funding, we're now experimenting how we can get inexpensive, smaller restrooms. Mm-hmm. Clearly, that study will have to be uh, completed uh, after my tenure. Right. But we are exploring ways of doing things like the Portland Loo and other smaller type restrooms that aren't the full. Ours are really comfort stations because we have a maintenance room as well as the restrooms on either end. But yes, we're trying to make sure uh, that more and more of our 
playgrounds and parks have comfort stations. And is there a best practice around keeping that safe? Oh, they're generally safe. What we try to do is have a park worker in each one of the playgrounds mm -hmm. so that there's eyes and ears on the park. We have friends groups that call us on a regular basis. We have about 1,800 friends groups in New York City, uh -huh. and there are eyes and ears. And then we have our parks enforcement patrol that actually go around. We open them and close them so that they're not open overnight right. to make sure they're safe. But we rarely hear instances happening in our comfort stations. They're safe. Great, 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 great. And last question on the subject is you mentioned this in passing because you talked about Robert Moses era playgrounds and being asphalt. But I'm thinking they were asphalt in poor neighborhoods or in neighborhoods of color in his day because he was probably making the parks in Central Park the opposite of that asphalt park. I'm not sure if that's the case. I mean, I have to give Robert Moses credit. And I always tell people there were two Robert Moseses. There's the pre-war mm -hmm. and there's the post-war. The pre-war, he was very concerned about people drowning in the East River mm -hmm. uh, because there were no place for people to cool off. And so he built these amazing municipal pools. But then children were playing in the streets mm -hmm. and they were getting hurt, whether it's by a vehicle or a horse carriage. And so he built close to 600 playgrounds. He did them quickly, low maintenance. So they were just asphalt. They had their play equipment, the monkey bars, that seesaws, things that uh, slides growing up. They don't really exist, the monkey bars in our parks anymore, but wanted to provide the recreational outlets. That was the pre-war Robert Moses and did a really, really good job mm. uh, creating what was the movement of parks and recreation which exists to this very day. Fair deal. And then there was the post-war Robert Moses who... Then there was a the post-war Robert Moses got <laughs> a little too much power and had... <laughs> These, uh, these grand views of uh, transportation system and started plowing through neighborhoods, had the power of eminent domain. And I can tell you, I was a professor at Brooklyn College for about uh, eight years, an adjunct professor, and every student wanted to write a paper on how Robert Moses destroyed their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Today, Biden and the administration is trying to kind of heal those past wrongs of how some of these highways just barrel through neighborhoods right. that are still feeling the trauma today. Mm -hmm. So the post-war Robert Moses was a bit different, lots of power, too much power. And as a result, uh, he used that power to build a highway system and bridges, but also at the same time, uh, a lot of communities had to pay the price of losing their identity and having something plowed right through, including urban renewal. Right. I really appreciate your having that balanced view Two reasons. One is the door to his office is right behind you in our video. So 20 feet away or whatever. But also you want to take the extreme view that every, it's either all good or all bad. And he did have both. And at least, the, and I only got through the first half of the book and I kept going, wait a minute, like he's kind of egomaniac, but did some pretty cool, hard to do things. He did. If you read some of his early writings about how many playgrounds there should be, Right. You would think me, with my passion for equity, that I wrote it, mm -hmm. and it was Robert Moses. So I was moved by seeing some of his writings about pushing for more and more playgrounds. Now, it didn't go in every neighborhood. There were right. some places in Brooklyn where you see a lot of gaps. Mm -hmm. And so I'm concerned about parts of North Brooklyn and South Queens uh, that didn't get as many playgrounds and parks. And those gaps still exist today. But I have to give him credit. I think close to 650 playgrounds uh, under his tenure, which is an amazing number. Yeah. Fair deal. So let's change subjects. And you've been presiding over the parks during the time of COVID when A, parks have become even more important and the common space and the urban space for all of us has become even more important to get out of our apartments. Talk about what 
what you had to do and how you had to shift things during COVID? Well, first, I have to give credit to our parks employees. From the very beginning, they were told that parks would remain open. We had to close some playgrounds and basketball courts, but for the most part, our large passive parks had to remain open. And they did not want to come to work. They had to travel on mass transit. So I give them a lot of credit. They were deemed essential workers. And so we had to very quickly pivot to a very different agency of really being frontline workers. Uh, And so at that time, everything was closed. Bowling alleys, movie theaters, any gathering place you can go to was closed. Parks became that place and people came out. Uh, And it was springtime. It happened in March. And you would just watch the people come into the park and you would literally see the stress and anxiety drip off of them as they walked into Central Park or Prospect Park. And we knew the role that parks played. Throughout the pandemic, they became your out, your office, uh, your personal training room, uh, wedding venue, shower. Uh, they became everything to everyone. And for the first time, people really began to see the value of parks. I mean, we in the parks world knew that, but now the public started saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is the only place I can go. And it wasn't just for physical health, as I said earlier. It was also for mental health. And I kind of called our parks the sanctuary of sanity because the one place you can go at the early part of COVID where you can just feel alive. And so people appreciated the park workers. They appreciated the, the parks themselves. I watched people taking photographs of every flowering tree and flower they can find. They just were trying to find some joy during the dark days of COVID. And so, uh, but then we had to pivot and be social distant ambassadors. Just want to add, this was no different than a 1918 pandemic. And and you're now seeing a new appreciation for parks. And most people don't know this, but Umstead's child died of cholera, died. And so I think, you know, that inspired him to create more green spaces, the outdoor lungs for people to enjoy. And we're seeing that same trend happening today. We need more open space, more green space, whether it's a sidewalk or a street or a plaza. So that trend's certainly going to continue into the future. Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking during COVID, when you get into the park, I rejoice being near other people, not too near, but seeing other people having fun makes my heart sing. Well, in the beginning, you didn't see that many people uh, in the park. They were by themselves. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you would see a couple. But at that point, do I wear a face covering? Do I not wear a face covering? Clearly, people with dogs were coming out. The kids, I think there was a little bit nervousness at the beginning. Uh, but the answer is yes. I mean, I'm a runner, and I'd run and see a friend of mine because we weren't doing group runs anymore. It was like you found gold. I mean, you would stop there from a 10-foot distance and go crazy and wave your hand because you just didn't see your friends. Zoom was still in its infant stages, and so to find a friend in a real flesh and person, it just warmed your heart. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad those days are over. Right, and so let's pivot beyond parks to think about both parks and and not parks post-COVID, and what behaviors change in the public realm. And I'm wondering parks, parklets, which you're not the commissioner of parklets, street dining, bike lanes? Like, what does all that mean post-COVID? Well, first, you know, when I first came in as commissioner, I made a statement which people thought I was going to try to take the job. But I felt like other countries, you needed a a czar of the public realm because the average citizen does not distinguish between a sidewalk. Well, let me put it this way. Our charter states that a sidewalk adjacent to the park is park's jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. 
all other sidewalks not adjacent to a park is under the jurisdiction of the Department of Transportation. The average citizen doesn't know whether this is under jurisdiction of parks or Department of Transportation. And to be honest with you, Matt, they don't care. Mm -hmm. But the agencies do. So I was looking to create this seamless public realm. Don't make a distinction by the agency that people are just looking for that public realm they could experience. So we looked very carefully at our sidewalks, our streets. I agree with you because certain neighborhoods don't have access to quality parks because we had to close playgrounds and sports courts because people just weren't social distancing. And then the restaurants started looking at this very cherished public realm, which is called the sidewalk and the parking lot, the parking lane, and started putting up parklets so people can go out there and eat. We started closing off streets. We call them play streets, shared streets, where people can go and just walk. We closed close to 100 miles mm. of streets in New York City, some adjacent to parks, some not adjacent to parks. And there's still a desire to keep some of those streets open because now kids can go out there at that time and play on the street without going to a neighborhood park. Like when I grew up and a parent could look out the window and just keep an eye on their child. That was one of the silver linings of COVID that now everyone across the world is questioning whose streets, whose public realm, who does it belong to? Is it a car to park their private vehicle or is it for the public who actually paid the taxes to help build this infrastructure in the first place. Mm -hmm. So put your planning hat on and put your global planning hat on. Does this change? Does this accelerate something that would have happened, should happen, and will it keep going in that direction? It started happening already. I'll tell you the global leaders. Barcelona is one of the major ones people are keeping an eye on. They took 16 intersections, and they want to give the public space back to the public. Mm -hmm. uh, they're doing this in Paris, London. I have to say New York is one of the other leaders. So they're beginning to take a look at this shared public realm that belongs to the public, mm -hmm. but we've given far too much of it away to cars. So whether it's for walking, for biking, for dining, there is now a whole evaluation of the public realm. By way of an example, New York City, 14% of New York City consists of parks. Another 26% consists of streets and sidewalks. Mm. So 40% of New York City is in the public realm. And I believe it's time now to give some of that back to the public. There's this other initiative in New York called New York 25 by 25, and that's to give 25% of the public realm by 2025 to people. And so this movement is taking off, as I mentioned, Paris, Barcelona, right. London, New York, and I do suspect there are other cities across the country that will follow suit and the world. And will this be part of your work going forward? I will be a strong advocate of it. Yes, the good thing is that I'll be leading the planning, parks and rec portfolio, as well as trailways. So the answer is yes, I'll be advocating very loudly <laughs> to make sure that we can transform this. Because it's hard to acquire land for a park. Right. But you have all this underperforming asphalt, sidewalks and streets. You own those, and they can very easily be reimagined mm -hmm. uh, for a park-like experience. Uh -huh. Last question like this. Talk about trails, because that's not urban. But, you know, and Atlanta has the trail around the city, and I'm a bike rider, so I love yeah. these trails when they work. We do have trails. Uh, I launched Destination Greenways. We're trying to ramp up our trails here in New York City. We have 30,000 acres of parkland. 10,000 of that 30,000 is natural areas. We have a lot of our trails mm -hmm. for hiking, for walking. So you'd be surprised. We have a lot of trails out there in New York City. People use them. Across the country, people are seeing a record number of people 
coming out to use the trails where they can walk and get exercise. So we do have it here in New York City. And from my colleagues across the country, people are coming out and they actually have to time or at least control the amount of people coming to the parking lot because that's their way of controlling the flow because they were getting quite crowded on these narrow trails. Mm -hmm. And on those narrow trails, there are statistics about property values going up, down, value being I would imagine going them. up. I know when I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, there was mm -hmm. some concern about trails in people's backyards because mm -hmm. we had to connect these all together. What used to be a liability quickly pivoted to an asset. Right. And now you saw development saying, we are now a half mile next to this trail. And so a lot of cities realized, because it wasn't just for recreation, some of them were used for transportation. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to bike to work, you can very easily get on this trailway system and avoid being on the major thoroughfares and get a nice green experience riding it to work at the same time. That's wonderful. Last question before we turn the table and talk about you and your background, how you got into this. Coincident with COVID was the killing of George Floyd. And I think you had an experience in the park, at Central Park, with a cocker spaniel and something crazy. And maybe you were outspoken on that. Any comment on that experience? Yes. So I was at home when I got the first text from a friend saying, did you hear about this? Did you see this video? So Christian Cooper, which is a black birder, I met him through Zoom because he wanted me to address some issues as a result of that incident and watched the video and was in a state of shock. Later that day, George Floyd was murdered. So the two kind of coincided at the same time, but I was a bit uh, overwhelmed by what I saw. Uh, but the George Floyd murder was something that was uh, extremely overwhelming and had to sit back and reflect about what was going on. Uh, it's hard for me to talk about it because I, I was watching a man being murdered right before my very eyes, screaming to his mother as he was transitioning to meet her. For me, that was just too much. I mean, it was too much. First, to have that incident of a gentleman who just confronted someone and watching this woman lie as she was calling the police. Luckily, nothing bad happened, but who knows how that could have easily gone sideways. And then watch the murder of someone live on television. As a black commission, as a black man, uh, it, was, it was too much. I took about a day or two and then put out uh, a statement initially to my staff, but staff was so, uh, I can't find the right words, uh, were surprised and shocked by what I wrote. They asked for that to go public, and I did in, in early June. We did send it out on, on social media. But to me, it was an awakening. To be both a black man and a commissioner, I knew I had to say something because it kind of pulled a scab off of all my emotions. You know, as a professional at my stage, I had to check my black identity at the door my entire career. I couldn't express mm -hmm. how I feel. And we, as a staff, I had to appeal and reach out to our black employees uh, to share with them uh, how I felt and what we needed to, to do. And the first thing is, people kept saying, what can I do? And I said, that's the wrong question. You have to first ask, how do I feel? This is lifelong trauma that was just ripped apart by these two instances. We had to process it. We had to talk about how we felt before we figured out what we should do. It, it opened up for the first time in my life. I was born in the 1960s. I felt that there was an awakening. Right. And... Everything changed from that point. It was this incident. Yes, we knew about Ahmaud Arbery. You know, he was a runner, not a run, well, he was running right. when he was killed. Breonna Taylor, 
there were others, but I think this one, because we watch on live TV, and there was no dispute, at least in our eyes, that this police officer murdered him before. And, and I know the courts are going through it right now, but we saw what we saw. We know what we know. It just became too much. And I think collectively, the trauma from COVID on top of the trauma about the institutional and system, systemic racism came to a head all at once, and it just exploded. And people, even though we were protesting, I was protesting, we had our masks on, but we said enough is enough, and now it has to change. I'm so grateful there were many allies that for the first time wanted to have a conversation, but it was painful. And I shared experiences that I went through that I'd never shared with anybody before. They assume, oh, at your level, these things don't happen to you. And on, we had these reflection calls with my staff just to talk about how they feel. And the stories I heard, you know, broke my heart. You know, there's one woman, she was on the call and, and she, so you could tell something happened and she just experienced her son, 14 years old, calling her because two police officers stopped him, 14 years old, on the way back from the grocery store. So she bolted out of the house like saying, and it was nothing, he didn't do anything, and this is the trauma we feel on a regular basis. You know, will he be shot? Will he be arrested? 14 years old, just going to the grocery store. This other gentleman asked me a question, and I didn't know where it was going. He said, would you ask a Jewish person to clean a Nazi cemetery? Right. And I said, uh, well, wh what do you mean? He says, well, there's this park in Queens that my supervisor asked me to clean this informal cemetery in one of our parks. He looked at the tombstones, did his research, and find, found out that these were former slave owners. And he said, I refuse to clean the cemetery with former slave owners. He went to his supervisor. He said, that's your job. And he had said, Commissioner, what would you do? It kind of took me by surprise. So after that, we started having sensitivity training with the supervisors to understand this is painful. We have lifelong trauma we've been dealing with. And so it was an educational moment for all of us about how we have to understand how this is impacting our daily lives. And so that training right now is underway. So something like that doesn't repeat itself again. So the reflections were they're still going on today. Now we have expanded right. it because of the whole uh, Asian hate of what we see going on. So we're right. having a call this week with some of our Asian AAPI staff uh, this week. Uh, so that we can help support them as well about what they're going through. And again, these reflections are about how do you feel, not what can I do. Right. And it's interesting because it's equally incumbent upon the white folk <laughs> to look at themselves, ask the hard questions, and accept your own responsibility and stereotypes that uses a negative way. And I right. know I have them. So I'm watching myself and I go, wow, that's interesting. You know, you put a finger on, you see it and you go, but that's only crap. Let's let go of that. Hard to I do think that. Part of what it is, is that, you know, my goal was to create a safe space for a staff where they can have these conversations. Mm -hmm. I don't know uh, if a white person would approach my staff and say, how do you feel? How open staff would be? So initially, we just had these calls with black employees, so they mm -hmm. felt it was a safe space to share. Right. We've now expanded it out to other communities, our gay, our LGBTQ uh, community as well, now the Asian community, Latinx community. So it's important to create a safe space just to say, how do you feel versus pivoting to what can I do? Right. That comes later. Yeah. The first one is how do, you, how do you feel? Yep. Well, thank you for that. Let's change the subject. 
I want to know how you got into this this business. You grew up in New York, so kind of talk through that. Talk how how you got to school and started to become an sure. urban planner. Well, as I stated, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. First mm-hmm. grew up in Prospect Heights and then Flatbush. So I was mm-hmm. very close to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden mm-hmm. and Prospect Park. That was by orientation of nature. I saw the first babbling brook at the first time at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Till this very day, I go back and like saying, "Wow!" So I was fascinated by nature. But the one event, if I had to go back in time to say what triggered me to focus on planning is my father took me, my parents took me to the 1964 World's Fair in Queens. Mm -hmm. I saw this model, the size of a room of New York City, and I could not get that image out of my head. I've learned later on that was called a panorama. I actually went back as uh, commissioner, and they opened up the room, and I got to see it. And I can't tell you how it just moved my soul. There was something about that model, something about seeing the city at that scale, that even as a kid, I was four years old in 1964, I couldn't get out of my head. I was fascinated by cities. And so as I grew up going to school, I was determined to understand more about cities and so I pursued a degree in architecture. Didn't know about planning at the time, right. but I loved to sketch buildings. I loved to sketch landscapes. And so that was just part of my upbringing. And then in the School of Architecture, I learned about this profession called planning and fell in love with it because it wasn't just about the building. Mm-hmm. It was about the city. It was about the neighborhood. So that was kind of my evolution of going from just a young kid in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and being exposed to Prospect Park, Brooklyn Botanical Garden, and then the panorama. That sealed the deal. I bet. It's interesting. I, I love looking at maps. So I love looking high, and I like the big picture stuff. That's that's what turns me on, too. But I could just imagine the panorama as compared to an architecture, you know, this little monopoly buildings versus here's all of it and how it fits in. So then how did you march through your career to get to this place that you are today? So let's uh, kind of just start and quickly walk through the different jobs that you had and how you navigated that. Well, the first, as I worked for the Department of City Planning, I had an internship and started in about 1985. And when I graduated, I went to work for the Department of City Planning, got to work on some very, very cool projects in Staten Island. I was always innovative and different. And right away, I was named Rookie of the Year for the Department of City Planning, I think in 1987, and just had a reputation of not following the rules and trying to be innovative. And so I caught the attention of the borough president of Manhattan. This is now three years later. They were looking to collect young, talented planners for what was a, a very progressive office. Ruth Messenger, she was a borough president at the time, an amazing individual. And I went from being a planner in Staten Island to now I was a planner of four community boards in New York City, which included Midtown, Times Square, the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side. And I was shivering because I'm like saying, what did I get myself into? I'd run to the bathroom and pray because mm-hmm. I, I went from little houses to going to skyscrapers. Uh, and so seven years there, uh, really uh, dealt Was there a difference on that side of the table? So in one, you're in the planning department, but now you're working for the executive of the city. I may get this That's wrong. correct. It was the executive. Our role really was more policy, but we did a lot of planning, and mm-hmm. it was a lot more freedom uh, to be innovative. So I worked on vacant lot strategies, uh, of course, working on large developments and park plans. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely, it was as more of an advisor mm-hmm. uh, and a planner than just processing applications. And so I was able to really spread my wings, but Manhattan being the market that it was, quickly started getting attention because I 
loved being innovative and find better ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And so I started very quickly earning a reputation in New York, got active for the first time in the American Playing Association. My presentation skills seemed to impress a lot of people, but I came up with a lot of new concepts that no one had thought of before, and I became somewhat of a rising star in my late 20s, early 30s. Just give one example of innovative, because I'm thinking of two different things at the same time. One is you can get stuff done. That in and of itself is innovative, but the other is true innovation, different ways to look at things, not to solve a right. problem. Well, but... So for one, um, worked, uh, trying to think there's quite a few. So one of them was, I think, West Harlem Pierce Park. This was a project that um, I think was more on the process side. So there was a project in the West Side that Mayor Giuliani wanted to uh, just get rid of a waterfront and put a huge commercial complex, and the community was not on board with that. And so we came up with this very creative plan, which ultimately got built called West Holland Pierce Park. But it was the way I did the outreach that was so different. Mm. We did this composite plan. The community came up with a 120-member committee, which I thought was unmanageable. So what I did was I divided up each of the 120 into groups of 10, and each one of them came up with their own plan. And I creatively stitched together this composite plan, this mosaic, because the African-Americans in central Harlem weren't working with the Dominicans in Manhattanville and the whites were preservationists near Columbia University, and no one was talking the same. And so I took each one of these 10 plans, and I remember I was working with the West Harlem Action Committee, and I was so upset that there were 120 members. I walked out the room, came back in and said, we have got to stitch these 10 plans together, and that ultimately became the plan for Harlem Piers. And then a few years later, ultimately it got built. So I think for that one was more of a process technique that worked quite well. So that was one um, innovation I'm very proud of. Got it. Keep talking and let's walk into your career. So pathway of your career. So after the borough president's office, uh, the borough president wanted to run for mayor. I knew that uh, her term was coming to an end. Uh, I was approached by a consulting firm. At the time, it was called Avery Spillage Price Shapiro. Being a consultant was new to me. Uh, but I learned so much from John Shapiro, who was one of the partners. And this is where I learned how to think very quickly, how to go into a neighborhood, do a diagnostic. He was a genius at walking into a neighborhood. He would bounce his head and come back and say, we have to do this, this, and this. I wanted to learn that quality. I wanted to walk into a neighborhood. And I've learned to be a detective. I've learned to be like a doctor of a neighborhood right. and, and look at the diagnostics and figure out from the clues what to do. And so worked for the firm for four years, came up with some other great uh, projects, quality of life planning in Philadelphia, D.C., other places, and again, started earning a reputation of being very innovative and getting things done. So that was my job as a consultant. One of my clients was uh, Irvington, New Jersey, and uh, they asked me, I was doing their master plan, and they asked me what I come on board as a, a town manager. Probably the most challenging and job and one I probably disliked the most. Uh, so I was running a city. Right. Uh, it was a tough city. During my time, the mayor got indicted. And I said, you know, is this a good career move for me? But it was a tough job. And that's when I realized being a city manager is not for me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stick to what I know. And then I was offered a position to be deputy planning director in Washington, D.C. That was a great experience. You had a new mayor, Anthony Williams, hiring consultants. D.C. is now in its renaissance period. What you see DC today is what happened at that point. 
during Anthony Williams. They were out of receivership from Congress. They now put Anthony Williams in charge as mayor. And I've had some three or four wonderful years of doing some great projects that are still there today from Anacostia to Columbia Heights. I can go on and on. And so I was in charge of first the neighborhood planning division, which is kind of a startup right. to get the neighborhood planning back on track. And then I led the comprehensive planning effort for Washington, D.C. And then during that time, the opportunity for Raleigh came along. Hold on, Raleigh, for a second. It's interesting because I, I spent 20 years in D.C. before coming to the West Coast. And now it's been 25 years, so I get to see the massive amount of change from when I was in D.C. One of the changes is it's moved from a city of color. I, I don't yes. know the right way to ask the question, but the diversity has changed in a significant fashion. And the development in neighborhoods has been exciting and marvelous. So gentrification. So talk about all that well, stuff together. Oh, so I was there. Let me back up for a second. So <laughs> there was a time when people, there was a white flu. People were right. leaving Huge. cities. And D.C. became known as Chocolate City. Yep. But then around the turn of the century, 21st century, cities became cool again. It was now the century of cities and people started returning. And what started happening is that these townhomes that used to have several families now just had one white family. Mm -hmm. And gentrification or people returning to the cities when D.C. became a very nice place to live, most who were black either moved to Prince George's County or east of the river, and you started seeing the demographics rapidly changing. New York, Philadelphia, D.C., after seeing a decline in city population started to rise again, D.C. not so much because those buildings that housed 12 people now had maybe three people. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you saw this hot market transform over your very eyes. Uh, I don't think what the mayor was trying to do was leading toward gentrification, but they certainly wanted to help build back the city. It had a horrible image that was very dangerous. But one of the implications is that you did see an outmigration of blacks mm -hmm. uh, and you saw an influx of whites, very affluent, very expensive homes, and then gentrification just was underway. And gentrification later, so not on your watch, or did you see it coming and then question how to have preservation alongside gentrification? We saw it coming. And one of the the plan we put together was growing an inclusive city. That was back then in the early 2000s. So I was on the planning department and we wanted to explicitly have a city where the prosperity would be shared because we already saw those trends happening at that time. But the city was still dangerous. We still had a lot of structures that were dilapidated. And so we knew we had to restore them. It just turned out that a lot more of the affluent whites had the wherewithal to come back to restore these older homes. You know, you look at Logan Square, all these places were, were not nice places, and now right. you go there and these homes are in the millions. Absolutely true. Maybe we'll come back to gentrification as a question at the end of the podcast. And then you went to Raleigh. So talk about what your kind of term was there. Well, I always wanted to be a planning director and I tried for many years. I was number two a lot, but was never number one. Uh, and I put my heart and soul into applying for that job. A little side story uh, about how I think I was successful getting that job. So I just got turned down to be playing director in another major city, and I was on a plane to Savannah, and there was this gentleman next to me like saying, are you okay? And I said, yeah, well, no, I had a tough time. And I told him what happened. It turned out he headed up, a, he was a CEO of an executive search firm and said, okay, I'm gonna send me your material. He gave me 200 person questionnaire. And I met with him in his office, and I'll never forget the first thing he said to me. He said, are you dead? And I'm like, what? 
He says, are you dead because you seem impressive, your resume, you're on like my A-list. He says, are you dead? I said, no. What kind of question is that? He said, because your resume looks like an obituary. Mm. He said, you're telling me what you've done, but nowhere are you communicating to me what can you do. And so I work with them to rebuild my cover letter, <laughs> rebuild my resume to talk about if you hire me, this is not just what I've done, right. but this is what I'm going to do. So I actually had this other cover sheet to tell the interviewers at Raleigh that if you hire me, this is what I'm going to do. Month one, month three, six months a year. And I walked in with that sense of confidence. And I remember the city manager later on told me, when you dropped your stuff on the table, you went from the number one candidate from here, said you were just like nobody was even close to you. It was so impressive. And I got the job of being playing director, being a man of color, finally being a playing director. I think I was at the age of 44. I was so ready to take over the world. And it was an amazing job. It was the right job at the right time. Raleigh was looking to become a big city. They wanted a person with big city experience. And so it was a perfect marriage and great, great things happened in Raleigh. It went from a city that was transitioning mid-sized city into now one of the most recognized best places to live in the 21st century. And so much of the work that I've done there over nine years, most of it was built from downtown to the transit hub, to Hillsborough Street, to Midtown. The whole psychology of the city changed. And uh, I put forward a vision, but Raleigh, Raleigh was ready for that vision. And they're still implementing some of the projects I put in place way back when I was there between uh, 2000, I think 2005 and uh, 2014 when I left, nine years. Hmm. So as a recruiter, I want to think about that, the resume advice, because that's great advice. It woke me up. Really. But, but more <laughs> I was important, ready to die. It, it's interesting. I think about maybe planning directors wind up being there for an era and an era that's a fulcrum moment. And that's what you just described for Raleigh, which is you were there when they wanted to accomplish a thing. And then you got it to move from place A to place B. And then you were, then you could leave and go do something else. But that lift of transformation is huge. Yeah. I did not want to leave the job in Raleigh. And I was very, very reluctant. As I told you, when the mayor reached out to me, it's like, mm -hmm. I have a dream job in Raleigh. Love it there. Great quality of life, son, grandkids. But at the same time, how often are you being asked to be commissioner of right. the largest city in the country and the global amazing city like New York? It was hard to say no. I also knew it had a beginning and an end. And I was very vocal to say when my tenure is over, I'm returning to Raleigh. So I told him I'm going to keep my word. And when my tenure is over, I'm returning back to Raleigh. Did not expect to be in the private sector, but uh, Raleigh and North Carolina are nonetheless very excited I'm coming back. And you're going to have twin homes, so you'll stay a New Yorker and a North Carolinian. Yes, Linian. correct. Carolinian. My, uh, the firm, great firm, they are going to allow me to split my time between New York and, and North Carolina, uh -huh. have family here, have family there. But, but also, I expect to uh, travel and help cities across the country, in some cases around the world, right. to really put forward great plans and great park plans. So, so let's think about both the career arc that you've described this moment of your resume writing where you turn to a visionary from what you had done in the past, maybe. And then also you're finding your voice as a leader and being one of the hundred most influential planners in the world and, and, and being the leader of these organizations. When did you find that voice? When did that 
when did that quicken in you? I think it happened when I became the Raleigh playing director. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when I think it really notched up a gear. Always was a presenter, always floating out new ideas. But I think it was a combination of being Raleigh playing director and then becoming president of the American Playing Association, where it all crystallized. When I became president, uh, we just finished the recession, playing departments were shrinking, and I was very concerned that planners weren't really seeing their value. And so I went on a crusade uh, across the, really the globe to talk about why planners are valuable and why planning is valuable. Now, most people don't know this, but they can go back and look at the videos and the tapes, but I was one of the first to talk about the demographic change that we're seeing here today, as well as talking about the generational profiles of greatest, uh, silent, boomer, X, Y, and Z. Did that very early on, talked about the change in demographics, not just color, but what we're seeing in terms of the households and what that means for planning. Made that connection and that is what I think started to propel the work that I was trying to do. Because I felt as planners, our job is to kind of like stockbrokers, look at those signs, those clues, and start to prepare the community for what is coming. Mm -hmm. What are we planning for? The emerging trends were telling us we have a graying of America, a browning of America, the rise of single person households, the traditional family was changing. Uh, and so these were some of the issues that I was sharing with everyone when I traveled, that these are the things we have to share. We can't rely on single family zoning or single family homes because with single person households, there'll be no market in the 2030s or the 2040s. So we have to start pivoting toward more multifamily and not rely solely on single family. That's back in 2008, 2007. And so that uh, I had a new voice and a new method about how we had to plan for our communities in the future. I had taglines such as, I believe that planners are guardians of the future. We're the ones that got your back. We think about the uncertainty and risks of the future. So as I said, we have to be like stockbrokers of anticipate what's next and then commute it back to the city so they know we're running out of water, we're running out of land, climate change is a reality, demographics are changing, household types are changing. What are we gonna do about these things? And Raleigh listened and we were better prepared than other cities because we took heed to uh, some of these uh, forecast projections that I was making. We're going to wrap up soon, but I want to stick with that theme for a few minutes. And it's interesting because what I want to do is think of the theme of you as a person of color as a leader in planning. Now I want to throw that away or have that be part of the story, but I want the other part of the story because you just really quickly said you went through all the generations, right? Yes. You went through boomers and gray, and, and then what does the future mean? So look forward 20 years. 30 years. What, what is it that we have to build for that will be that future? When I had first said that the country will be minority majority by 2040s, I remember giving a speech. It was a day after there was a red wave for the Congress back in 2010. <laughs> and people literally screamed and says, you're lying. And they left the room. When I talked about the rise of the Hispanic population that was going to triple by 2050, you could sense that something was happening in the room. Right. What I was gratified was that the younger generation is different. They embrace diversity a lot more than the older generation. But I And I have slides that say, if you think it's bad today, the 2020s will be a clash of values. Because it's not wow. left or right. It's a clash 
of the boomer and the X generation and then the Y, Z generation, there's this clash of values. The older generations are worried that I don't want to be a future minority. We've got to get control. And I told them that if we don't do something, I said, look, people of color protest, white people get elected and change laws. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And that's what I said back then. And so I stopped talking about it as much because when I saw the rise of Trump, whether they figured out what was going on, but a person feeling I'm going to be a minority, this is not going to happen. I'd rather burn the house down than be a future minority. And we're seeing that play itself out. The bottom line is the 2020s. This is not the 2040s, what's going to happen. The reason why I'm not as concerned is because the younger generation doesn't think like the older generation. And so as we see this clash of values and the X, Y, Z, and now alpha move into power, Mm-hmm. We'll be able to deal with this demographic change once we get to the 2040s and the 2050s. So I'm a little bit more calmer, but I was very concerned when I started seeing all these things happening about voter suppression. Mm-hmm. We can't win if right. we just play by the rules. We're now going to have to put our thumb on the scale because people are concerned. What is it going to be like if we as a white population become a minority? Will we be treated the way we treated people of color for the past hundred and hundreds of years? Well, and and if the white people fear being treated the way they had been treated, that's worth being scared about, right? Except it's, hang on a second, but it's a different thought to go, I live in a diverse world and I go into a park and all of these different sounds and behaviors and the way different populations sit around a picnic table makes me kind of smile and comfortable. Well, that's why I like parks. It's where all the cultures can come together. Uh, But there are some, again, this is not all whites. This is, I think, a few that just are concerned because they're in states that don't interact a lot with people of color. Mm -hmm. And so they can only figure out what that's going to be like by what they hear or watch on television. When I used to give these speeches, I kept saying, look, Raleigh's going to be a minority majority, you know, X amount of years. We have five or six minority majority states. They're still on the map. They're still functioning. So to think about how scary this is to me is just a figment of someone's imagination. Uh, All of us love our country, regardless of what color you are. Uh, We may have different values. We all love our country. We all want to follow laws. But when people kind of project what does it mean if, it's because they really don't have any interaction with people of color or have their biases and prejudices about how they think they behave or they will lead. Right. Which brings us to what kind of infrastructure do you place in the city that makes this diverse population that we're growing into be able to all coexist happily in the city and for the city to serve everybody? And that's just what the goal is. Yeah. And we have cities like that. I mean, we have sporting events like that. I mean, you go to places people can come together. Is this when I start to politicize about what that means about losing power? There are some, not all, some get very, very nervous. So we're in this clash of values, uh, mm-hmm. and I can't believe I go back to my slides, and I said, there it is. Wow. I said, if you think it's going to be bad now, the 2020s is going to be bad. And I felt the 2020 election was critical because whoever won the 2020 election gets to draw the maps mm-hmm. for the districts for the next, as a 10-year prize. Right. But that got overshadowed by COVID, and there was some noise about 2020. But we're seeing what's happening now with the voter suppression laws because a lot of legislatures across the country are controlled by a certain demographic group. Yeah. So a couple last subjects. We, and we touched on a little bit, and because you're the 
planning guide. What, what about gentrification and 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 diversity, gentrification, preservation of neighborhoods? So just talk about those, how those issues mash up. All right. So gentrification, <laughs> I'm going to speak my heart on this one. Let me just say, when I was in planning school, gentrification was seen as a very good thing. Mm-hmm. This was the 1980s. I mean, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, people are coming back to the city. I remember that block. It was horrible. Now it's brought back to life. Right. Businesses are coming back. For some, I want to be careful when I say this because I'm sure I may get some hate mail. For some, gentrification has been weaponized. Mm-hmm. It's become a ball of confusion. Mm-hmm. The original word dealt with class to class being pushed out. Mm-hmm. But when it came to the U.S., it started out, Ruth Glassman, it started out in the, in the, in the U.K. for the gentries when it came to the U.S., Race and urban renewal was combined with gentrification where it became this ball of confusion. So now when people say gentrification, I'm not sure what they're talking about. Right. I get the displacement part and we need to plan so that if a person lived in this community their entire lives, they should not be displaced. We have to figure out where all can coexist. But when someone says gentrification today, I have to ask them a lot of questions because I don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. When I work with my students, I said, here is a neighborhood in Detroit. It was an industrial area. Nobody lived there. There are no businesses there. Now people come in. They start to revitalize it. Is that gentrification? And my students are like, it blows their mind. They don't know how to answer that question. Mm -hmm. So to me, gentrification is revitalization with Mm trade-offs. Gentrification is revitalization with trade-offs. Some trade-offs are good. Mm -hmm. Some trade-offs are bad. Mm -hmm. The one thing we have to focus on, which is displacement, and change of culture. Those have to be managed. Some places do it well, some places don't do it well. But I think if we can focus on what are the areas we can deal with because we want neighborhoods to be revitalized. We don't wanna have uh, inferior structures that are not healthy or could collapse. So I think there's a healthy way we could move forward Mm -hmm. if we focus on the displacement Mm -hmm. and then we focus on the change in culture because I used to go to church. Now it's a upscale coffee shop. You know, so those are the things we have to work on so that the community does not lose its identity, but could also have newcomers, but have those that have lived there their entire lives right. remain as well. Hey, I want to thank you for that. I was on a panel some months ago for my college on gentrification, and it bothered me because it's good till it's bad or it's complicated. And you took the it's complicated subject displacement bad we know we know what to do with that word but gentrification right. if you just throw one of those hot words out and upset everyone you don't even know where to start in attacking yeah because i remember when i was in raleigh people were getting upset like saying the city why are you why are you pushing gentrification like right. saying you do know all this property is private your neighbors are selling the property so if you're concerned about gentrification speak to your neighbor because everyone has a price this house was worth 150000 Someone's offering them 300000 They're walking away. The house then transitions. The neighbor then transitions. I don't know why you're getting mad with the city. What I started to do was work with them about how do we increase density. So if you wanted to remain in the community, you, you could. They said no to density, and now the entire east side of Raleigh has been totally gentrified. Yeah. Contradictory goals that can't coexist. So. I mean, at the end of the day. Okay, last question on leading voices is always – you have five minutes with a young person planning a career somewhere in real estate, but maybe in planning, like my daughter, who, as we've talked about before, is graduating with city planning degree in a couple of weeks from Berkeley. But what would your advice to a young person entering the business be? 
Number one, the American Institute of Certified Planners have a code of ethics. I would encourage you to read them. It moved me, and I read it at least two or three times a year. It talks about the role that we play as planners, that we are guardians of the future, that we think about the long-term consequences of present actions. The fact that I can care about present and future generations, and even though a child's not born yet, I have your back. I'm thinking about you. It is a purpose-filled profession that is very determined to make sure that as we go forward, we provide a quality experience that you can thrive and grow and live. It's one of the unique professions that if we don't look for the future and think about what's coming, who will? And so I'm honored to be in this profession where I'm constantly looking at present, but also looking at the future. There are emerging trends coming, and I'm focused on how do we make sure we're prepared for those issues so that they don't just surprise us as they come along. So what I will tell a young person is read those code of ethics. Really embrace those principles. They're, they're very, very moving. And make sure it's part of your purpose. When you have a purpose-driven profession, everything you do is absolutely rewarding. So that's how I'll leave it right there for any young person emerging in this profession. That's wonderful. And I will challenge the rest of our listeners and we'll put a sighting of this on the podcast notes. Everyone in real estate should take a look at those code of ethics because they're relevant to the rest of us since we're building the built environment too. Yep. And a last word of advice, which I've known for giving, uh, this is when I used to do a lot of public speaking. Mm -hmm. When you go out there, you meet with people. Uh, when you say no to something, you're saying yes to something else. And so I remember when I was in Raleigh, they were saying no to multifamily housing. And then you're saying, yes, young people and seniors, we don't want you in our community. Always understand when you hear that word no, what are you saying yes to? And I challenge people that as you go to public meetings, as you look at starting to come up with new and innovative ideas, you're going to hear no. But when you hear no, that means you're saying yes to something else. You need to think about what that is. So that's my little piece of advice as well as make sure your resume does not look like an obituary. <laughs> that changed my life and my career. I, I thank that man and that plane ride to Savannah uh, because for me, it just opened my eyes to talk about that what I'm in this position is not what I've done, yeah. but what can I do? And your moment in front of the panorama. Yes. Hey, um, Mitchell, thank you very much. This was a great conversation. And I wish you all the best in your new role and your continued leadership in the planning profession. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.